turn this thing on. I keep forgetting that thing. Our study this evening begins in the eleventh chapter of Romans. And we're going to be looking at the first paragraph there, 17, verse 17 through verse 24. Now let's remember the context. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters, is dealing specifically uh, with the Jews and they're feeling rejected by God. That's what he's dealing with in those three chapters. And so, uh, Paul is presenting his doctrine of vindication, where he vindicates God for rejecting the Jew. Now we'll see in our study, as we've already saw in the 9th, 10th chapter, and we're in the 11th now, we'll see that God is not, did not deliberately reject them. Their rejection is because of unbelief. But this unbelief had to come. Let me ask you a question before we start into this Jewish problem of being feeling rejected and, and Paul uh, presenting to them the fact that there's two Israels being spoken of. The, the large circle represents the t entire nation of Israel. The small circle that he talks about is a remnant within that circle. God is in the remnant business, and we've studied that from the Old Testament. He's a God of remnants. This remnant is a remnant because they believe. And these out here are still in confusion. But that doesn't mean that they will always be in confusion because salvation is available to them too. And so they don't need to have their feelings hurt so bad because God has rejected the, the uh, nation of Israel. Let me ask a question in regard to that rejection. Things that Paul doesn't necessarily deal with here, but that the New Testament does. Why did God set up the Old Testament system? Why did He call Moses and set up the Israelite, the Jewish, the Hebrew system of all of their sacrifices and all of their oblations and everything that involved in their religion? Why did God set that up? It didn't save anybody. It didn't save a soul. Why did He set it up? Now, I'm trying to stir your thinking. And you may not get all the answers this evening, but it's something to think about. Why did God set it up? Why would he set up a system that didn't save anybody? That put them under law. Now, law has no provisional clause for justification. So there was no way they could be justified once they violated the law. Deuteronomy 20... Uh, Ezekiel 18.20 states the fact that the soul that sins, it shall die. Why did he set up a system that caused everybody to die? 
Well, that's a question that uh, is very clear as it's answered in the New Testament, but let me give you a quick answer. We read in Hebrews 10.1 how that God set up that system as a shadow of better things to come. It wasn't the reality at all. We find out from Ephesians, the, fourth, the first chapter in verse 4, that God chose the Christian, the man of God, the way that the man becomes a man of God. He, plant, he, he chose the way of salvation and everything before he ever made the world. Before Adam and Eve ever breathed a breath, God had already planned out man's salvation. Does that tell you that he already knew man would fail? And man would need him? Yes, he did. Yes, it does. He put us to a trial down here because he wants our allegiance, our obedience, free will. He not make he could have made robots out of all of us, couldn't he? He didn't want that. He wanted fellowship with people that was made in his image after his likeness. So he gave us a choice. And in that choice, he also gave us a way of escape from the damnation of the wrong choice. And so, time began, and it wasn't that man failed and God looked at it in shock and said, oh, what am I going to do now? And so he gave them the law. That's not what the case is at all. God had already planned it all out before he ever made the world. In fact, if you read and understand the Greek language uh, and its complete impact of uh, Revelation 4 and verse 11, the angel says, For thy glory all things were and were created. You see the impact of that? God knew you before you was even before you were ever born. You existed before you existed as we know in this world. Romans 4 and verse 17, Paul said that God's nature is that He calls things as though they already were. He calls, speaks of the futures or as it already had happened. And so, He calls things that be not as though they already were. That's the statement Paul made. And he's quoting from the Old Testament that said the same thing. I forget which book and verse, chapter and verse, doesn't matter, but you can look it up in the concordance. But here we're dealing with a God uh, that looked down through the corridors of time and he saw the end from the beginning. There's nothing that surprises God. There's nothing that shocks God. There's nothing that slips up on his backside and he stands in amazement of it. He had this all planned out. And so bringing it back to our study, God set up the Jewish nation. He set it up to show us the awesomeness of law. It has no provisional clause to justify anyone. You've read about how Moses was not allowed to enter into Canaan's land because he disobeyed God. Moses was a choice of God. God chose him to lead the people out, three and a half million people out of Egypt. God chose him. 
God bragged on him as being the meekest man that ever lived. And yet the pressures that Moses was under, he showed himself to be frail in his humanity because God said, speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. And you might say, well, that's a very simple thing. Why couldn't God overlook that? Because he was showing he wasn't under, they were under grace, it was under law. But the interesting thing about it, they were saved by grace. But God told Moses, because you struck the rock when I told you to speak to it, you violated the law and you'll answer the law. And so he said, you'll die. And he took him up on uh, Mount, one of the mountains and showed him all of Canaan's land that was promised to the Jew. And then he killed him and he buried him. But do we find Moses again? Matthew 17, he's resurrected with Christ and uh, with Elijah in the trans Mount of Transfiguration. Because you see in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, uh, I don't know whether you realize this or not, but in the Old Testament, it was stated very clearly, the just shall live by faith. Oh, but they're under the law. Yeah, well, the law just condemns. That's all it does. That's all the law does is condemn. The law says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. What if you do? No provisional clause to justify you. But God set those people under a law. And he set them up with a, a form of worship and every aspect of their worship designated or denoted something in a shadowy form of better things to come in a new covenant. So we have the old covenant that was a shadow and the new covenant, which is the reality. We have Judaism, which was a shadow. We have Christianity, which is the reality of all that God planned for man. You see why Christ raised up on the cross in all of his suffrage and cried with a loud voice triumphantly, it is finished because he was looking square in the eyes of the devil. The devil had been at war with God and his people since Genesis 3.15 when God said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and he, a man of her seed, one man, would destroy your head. But at the same time, speaking of the cross, you'll bite his heel very insignificant wound but the destruction of the head is the complete total annihilation and that's what Jesus came and done I'm trying to make this as simple as I know how and I hope I ain't confusing anybody but here the Old Testament was a shadow the Jews and their practice of all their religious performances was a shadow. The Hebrew writer has already explained many of these things to us, and we know them now. If we didn't before, we understand that it wasn't possible the blood of bulls and goats should ever take away sin. But God commanded them to take to offer blood and bull of goats for sin. But He was looking toward Calvary, as the blood of bulls and goats was a shadow of Calvary. 
and the blood of those bulls and goats was a shadow of the blood of Christ, His Son. The sacrifice of the Lamb uh, every year for Israel was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist that was sent as a forerunner for Jesus when he came on the scene and all the Jewish hierarchy and all regions round about, the Scripture says, poured out to hear him down on the River Jordan. John the Baptist pointed to one Jew over there and said, you see that Jew? That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, he all those animal sacrifices, those lambs, they stood specifically as a shadow of Christ and his redemptive work at Calvary. We see from Genesis where they sinned in the garden all the way through the Old Testament, the guilty, or the, the sinless dying for the guilty. All yeah. them animals, they didn't do anything wrong. Right. And it foretold of somebody coming as Christ did, an innocent individual that paid for our sin. Yeah. All the way through, the, the guiltless for the guilty. Exactly. Thanks, Butch. And that also shows the superiority of Christ because he was not only the high priest and his high priesthood, he didn't have to offer sacrifice for sin before he went into the Holy of Holies because he had no sin. The Jewish priests had to offer sacrifice for their own sin first so that they could go into the curtain of the Holy of Holies in the temple into the presence of God for the people. So there's his superiority. And his superiority is seen as he stands as high priest that he also became the sacrifice that he himself offered voluntarily. An intelligent sacrifice. And it had to be a man that was sacrificed. And that's why he, Philippians 2, 5 says that he humbled himself and emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? What did he humble himself from? From being the creator of this world. John 1 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. By Him, by the Word, all things were made. Without Him was not anything made that is made. Verse 14 of that same chapter, that Word, it says, became flesh dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten son of God full of grace and truth and in verse 18 of that same chapter no man seen God at any time the only begotten son of God full of grace and truth he has declared him Jesus came as a direct de declaration of the father of his love of his sacrifice for mankind but he had to humble himself to do it we cannot even begin to imagine the distance of humiliation from being the creator of all things to become a man like you and me. To put himself in the vulnerable position, vulnerable, of being tempted in the ability to sin because he had it. It says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. His mission, his purpose in life, 
he understood from an early age as he studied the scriptures because he had a great faith that delivered him. That's why the Bible says faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Because he learned his mission from Old Testament scripture. Don't you dare ever say, oh, but he was a son of God. He, he was under special care. No, he had to face the devil on the same ground that you and I have to face him. He had to face him with the same weapons that we've been given. And read Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18 sometime. The weaponry that we've been given. It's a shield of faith, basically. Girded with truth. All truth. Not part truth. All truth. With the helmet of salvation. And out in front is a shield of faith. Which is able to quench every fiery dart of the devil. Are we victorious? Yeah. Paul said in Romans 8, We're more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave himself for us. For I am persuaded neither death nor life nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor angels nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God planned our deliverance and for those that remnant that would love him and believe him. Because there'd be nobody go to heaven just because they know the Bible. There'd be nobody go to heaven just because it could quote Genesis to Revelation. The ones that goes to heaven would be those who love the Lord. What's the greatest of the commandment? What was the greatest of the commandment? Jesus was once asked that by the Jews. What did he say? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second's likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Did Jesus stop there? Now we stop there sometimes in our quotation, but what does it go ahead and say? On these two. On two what? Loving God and loving your neighbor. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. So why does a Christian do what he does? Because he loves God. Why does he walk the walk of Christianity? Because he loves God. We have a loving Father that adopted us, and that word is used many times in the New Testament adoption. You can see a little boy, a little girl, in an orphanage, knowing that no one there loves them, knowing that they've been hired to take care of them. They can't take their intimate problems to them because they don't really care. They don't belong to them. And God manifested His love to this orphanage called Earth, to you and I. And He abounded toward us in a magnificent love that we could not ignore. It brought us to tears. It brought us down to the nitty-gritty of where we live. And we come to understand He's a loving Father. Provides for all of our needs. Adopted us. Took us home. And centered us at His table of provisions. The provisions of virtue and wisdom and knowledge and all that God has to offer. And salvation. 
one of the most beautiful pictures that's ever been printed, painted in words. But he loves us. And so he planned our salvation before he ever made the world. And he thought it was worth it. But in regard to Paul's presentation here, there's already been this transition between the old system and the new system. That happened when Christ died at Calvary. Because that was the changing point. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, he became the author of eternal salvation to everyone that believes, everyone that obeys him. And so he instigated Christianity, salvation. He's the author of it. It begins at the cross. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I didn't come to you in long speeches with fancy words. He said, if you'll remember when I came to you, I came knowing nothing save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because that's where salvation begins. There is the display on a cross of God's love. The depths of it. The creator of the world came and humbled Himself. Emptied Himself. Become a man for my salvation. Now I've got a question to ask you. I didn't do what I'm fixing to say that I I had done or did or will. It's all hypothetical, but I'm going to do this for therapy. I'm a child molester. I've molested many children. I've done some murdering. I've lied and cheated and put men in jail when they didn't deserve to be there to save my own hide. Now which one of you is going to love me to the point that you'll go to court and take my place at judgment? When the judge pronounces judgment on such an ugly person that I just described, which, which one of you? Any hands? Do I see any hands? That's what Jesus did for all of us. He died for you and I. The scripture says, in while we were yet ungodly, while we were yet using his name in vain, while we had no use for him, Christ died for the ungodly. Another passage says he's not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now I'm trying my best to get us around to Romans 11. <laughs> it ain't coming very quickly. <laughs> but it's all good, isn't it? Yes. <coughs> so, so Colossians One, I think it's verse 13. A 
believe it is. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And so there was a point in time when we were delivered from the kingdom of darkness over here. Into uh what did he say? The kingdom. Translated us into the kingdom. Into the kingdom of his dear son. <coughs> of the son. When did that metamorphosis take place? When did that change take place? Because that change was made on the basis of a sacrifice for sin. How about Romans 6, verse 3 through 6? Paul wrote to the Corinthian, uh, to the Romans and the Christians at Rome. What did he say to them? Know ye not? In other words, Paul says, don't you know this? Shouldn't you know this? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ? How do you get into Christ? According to Paul, baptized. Baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For we were baptized into his death. And like Christ was buried and raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, even so we also are raised to walk in newness of life. And so we emulate the likeness of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He died because of sin. He died to free men from sin. To resurrect a newness of life. We do also because Paul says, knowing this, I think that's about verse 7, I'm not sure. Six. It's what verse? Six. Six. Verse 6, he says, knowing this. Oh, you mean there's some things I need to know that happened when I was baptized? Yeah. Knowing this, that our old man. Who's the old man? That old man that went into the baptistry and before he was baptized across his forehead was labeled damned and doomed in the eyes of God because of sin. Knowing this, that the old man was crucified there and we were raised a new man. Old and new? Yeah. When you were baptized, if you were, that old man, that old self, was left in that baptistry, hopefully, by the design of God and by your will to obey. And when you came up out of the baptistry, you came up in the eyes of God a new man. But what about that new man? Paul's not finished with him yet. He says, that new man, 
who walks in newness of life. So there's a new kind of life, a new type of life. Do you have to learn about it? Oh yeah. Have you still got your ugliness with you? Oh yeah. Until it's purged away by the truth of God's word. But all along the way, you're forgiven. That's what it means in 1 John 1, 7. Paul said, if we're willing to walk in the light, season the light, we have fellowship with one another. He's not talking about our fellowship. He's talking about my fellowship with God, your fellowship with God. That's the discussion in the context. So he said, we have fellowship with one another if we walk in the light. If we're willing to walk, to be led in the light, we walk with God. We have fellowship with God. Now what about that walk? Is it sinless? Oh no, because look at the and of the last of that verse. And the blood of His Son cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. The Greek verb there for cleanseth is a point continuous action verb which means that it happened at one time at Calvary and that blood continually every millimeter of every day of every year cleanses us from all sin that's what it says and so when we're raised out of the baptistry we're a new man determined to live in newness of life as God leads us and teaches us as a father would a son takes a little boy by the hand and he smiles when the little boy falls and cries he smiles when we misjudge things and go into tempers tantrums and different things he has feelings for us he loves us he wants the best for us and we're like that orphanage we're so glad to be free from an orphanage that had no love for us had nothing no hope for us just death and a cemetery somewhere and a hell that lasts forever of being cut off from the blessings and the goodness of God a choice that we those who go there make but there's a transitional period and that's at baptism are you perfect on the other side of baptism yes and no you have to work out your sin along the way and you you get what we might call more perfect every day. You're working on it. You're coming toward perfection. God's leading you. And all along the way, you don't have a thing to worry about. You have the confidence and assurance of knowing that the blood of His Son continually cleanses you from all sin. From some sin? From little white lies. There is no little white lies in before God. If it's anywhere on the wrong side, it's called black, darkness. And John says in 1 John 1, verse 4, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There's no shades of darkness, but there is with me. What hope can I have? The blood of His Son cleanses me. God sees me through the blood of His Son. That's verse 5, sorry. Huh? That's verse 5. You was looking at me. Verse 5? That's verse oh, 5. Okay. Sorry. Alright, so there's a, there's a moment in time when there was a transition made 
literally in history. And it was on a cross 2,000 years ago where that transition was made. The Jews didn't understand that. Bless their heart, and we're going to read where God didn't intend for them to fully understand it. He said in Isaiah 50, I'll share my glory with no one. You know, if he'd have told the Jews everything he was going to do, they'd have took credit for it. Did you know that? That's the way with man, isn't it? Yeah, boss, I want you to know I'm the one to come up with this brand, grand idea. You know, that, that that's the way we are. God said, I'll share my glory with no one. And no wonder God spoke in Proverbs in the Old Testament. No wonder He spoke in parables. In fact, when Jesus came, He spoke in parables to the Jews. They should have picked up on them, but they didn't. Some of them they did. And the apostles even come to Jesus and was a little hostile with Him. They said, don't you know you offended them Jews the way you speak to them? He said, yeah. He said, they was, it was meant to offend them. Do you know the gospel of Christ is going to offend a lot of people? Do you know the gospel, if it's preached in its reality and its truth, is going to offend some of your friends and your relatives? Are you going to hold back the gospel because you don't want to offend them and watch them go to hell? You're going to tell them that they might be offended. That they might open their eyes and see and come to believe. But look at the Old Testament in its entirety. All the way through the Old Testament, God showed hope coming in the future. And He spoke quite a bit about that hope in this new kingdom of righteousness and peace and equity among men. But it wasn't all that clear. But it was rejoicing. But look at 1 Peter 1, verse, beginning in verse 10. Peter says, Of which salvation is it speaks of the salvation of Christ? This new dominion over here in the kingdom of the Son, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, when the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. Was Christ, did his existence begin in Bethlehem of Judea 2,000 years ago? The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. In the Old Testament, you make a study of it, his name is Jehovah, a man of war. And he's the one alone that treads the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. Read Isaiah, the 63rd chapter. Isaiah says, Who is this that comes from Bozrah with his garments dipped in blood? And the one coming answers and says, It is I. 
that treads the winepress of God Almighty, I tread it alone. No man is with me. You go ahead and study that out, and that's the Christ. That's the one that went to Calvary alone and fought the battle for our salvation. He's always tread the winepress of God. He's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. I find it so funny, really, that the Jehovah Witnesses, the reason they call themselves that is to tell, let you know that we don't witness for Jesus. We don't witness for nobody but Jehovah. And they even came come into your house and their first line of attack is John 1. Because one of their astute members years ago retranslated that one very verse in their Bible. He didn't translate it. He abused it. And every scholar in the world has renounced it. Because their Bible reads, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Not the God, a God. A lesser God. And so they'll teach you that Jesus was just a mere good prophet. <laughs> Denying his deity. <laughs> so what was I talking about? I'm sorry. About who came, who came, uh, huh? who was the Christ that came with the blood on his garments. Yeah, Isaiah saw this man coming from Basra. That's the capital of Edom. It was destroyed. And it became a remembrance in a history book, which is nothing but a cemetery through the nations that once were and are no more, simply because God rules this world. Jehovah runs this world. Colossians 1.18, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The word of his power spoke this whole cosmos into existence. As he spoke to the rocks, and they heard him. He spoke to the trees, he spoke to everything that's created. They heard him, and they obeyed him. Has quite a bit of authority, doesn't he? The Spanish, what would they call him? Macho Hombre. Nobody to mess with. And that's why Paul wrote, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But here's, back in the Old Testament, the ones that God sent called prophets searched and inquired diligently to understand the things that they prophesied about. See, God didn't reveal the plan in a clear way so everybody could see it. It was in a prophetic picture. Little bits and pieces of the puzzle. And when you take the Old Testament with all of its pieces and you piece them together, and that's what Christ did. He fulfilled all that was written. In fact, when Jesus came in His ministry just before the cross, He told the Jews in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, Think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. Why would Jesus say a thing like that? 
because he knew that that's exactly where their mind would go. Think not have come to destroy the law and the prophets. Because see, there was going to be a change between Judaism and Christianity. Because here was a shadow that became a reality. And no longer do you offer animal sacrifices. They were merely a shadow that didn't take away sin. It just announced to the Jew that he had to do the same thing next year, next year, next year. But Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all time. Superior, spring, for sin. And the blood of bulls and goats wasn't possible. They should take away sin, but they spoke of the coming blood of one who would take away sin. And so Jesus came and he told the Jews in Matthew, in the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, he said, Think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. He knew that they was going to see things and hear things in regard to his ministry that they weren't going to be able to gel together with the old system. He said, Think not I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Did Jesus claim to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? That's exactly what he said. He went ahead and said, For verily I say unto thee, until heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. You know what a jot and a tittle is? It's the smallest marks in the grammar of the Hebrew uh, language. In other words, he's saying there won't be one thing fail of the law and the prophets. Did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Yes, he did. Every bit of it. That's why he cried out on the cross, it's finished. He was putting it back in the devil's face. The devil had been at war with God and his people because God said, there's going to be a seed of woman come forth and destroy your head. The devil had no idea his name would be Jesus. He had no idea that it would be off 4,000 years in coming. He didn't know that it would be by the way of a cross that he would conquer the devil, destroy him. He didn't know those things. But his fear drove him into war, into open combat with God all the way through the Old Testament. As he deceived man, raised up nations against God. And God whooped him every time. He was trying to outguess who that seed of woman was. No wonder he raised up in Cain and had Cain uh, kill his brother Abel through hatred. He didn't violate Cain's free moral agency, but he used Cain's jealousy to kill his own brother because he thought, surely that must be the seed of woman that's going to destroy my head because he was accepted by God. God was pleased with Cain with the Abel's offering because Abel offered it according to faith. Cain didn't. He had an act of sacrifice too, but not according to faith. And so Jesus knew that the Jew would misunderstand. And like I said, even the prophets of the Old Testament 
searched and inquired diligently. They just didn't look at it haphazardly. They diligently searched trying to understand the little bits and pieces of the puzzle that they bespoke of that all culminated and came to, to the perfect picture of Christ and his kingdom of righteousness. No wonder Jesus said it's finished on the cross. No wonder under the shadow of the cross in John 17, 5, Jesus prayed to his Father in anxiety. And he said, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. Now glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee from the beginning. And so Paul, getting to our lesson for this evening, he gives a warning to the Gentiles because their pride is going to stand in the way. Oh, you mean God actually ripped out some of these leaves off this plant from its very root to implant us into it? And Paul's going to explain that there had to be a transition and God in His love and mercy He allowed the premoral uh, misunderstanding of the Jew to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles and then afterwards the Jew also will be saved. So we're going to see the mercy of God in all that develops in Romans 11. If I'm reading that clock Right, it means we'll have to do that next week. But <laughs> I apologize. Sometimes I get carried away talking, and it just seems like there's a lot of things that needs to be said. I thought they needed to be said this evening, and they did. But that's what we'll look at next week: is a warning for the Gentiles, and that'll be in Romans 11, verse 17 through 24. Sorry if I you'll ruin your evening. <laughs> it's a hard thing for a preacher to learn how to shut up. <laughs> Do not ruin our evening, that's for sure. <laughs> Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. <laughs>